Chapter 9 A relationship is a living thing which grows. With care and nourishment it will prosper. With neglect and indifference it will die. The more we open up to another person, the more they'll open up to us. The more we share and enjoy together, the stronger will be our affection and attachment to one another. Experience shows that making relationships is not a science, but an art. A scientist, through logic, may formulate a theory, and through measurement establish a fact. But when that scientist wishes to make friends with real people, he doesn't use scientific methods. Friendship does not deal in logic or measurement, but in sympathy, generosity, kind inquiry and warm response, with just an occasional hint or suggestion or request. It was not logic or measurement, nor was it knowledge or even insight that changed the lives of the first disciples. It was their decision to follow Jesus. Living with him, life took on a different meaning. Fresh possibilities opened up, old habits faded away, new priorities and plans took shape. Jesus had won their confidence. Their desire was now to believe what he believed, to understand what he taught, to live as he lived in the love of his heavenly Father. Every relationship to start with is tentative and provisional. With very few people do we immediately become the best of friends. It takes time to explore the character, the temperament and interests of another person. Trust itself must grow. Although our first overtures of human friendship are usually cheerful and optimistic, we protect ourselves with inner reservations, always prepared to pull out if necessary. Two people will shake hands and talk of pleasant things, looking for what they may have in common, avoiding issues of tension and controversy. As we get to know one another, we weigh up whether or not to develop the friendship, to offer an invitation, to keep in touch. Minor peculiarities and irritations will be overlooked if the person seems reasonably congenial and interesting. After meeting a few times and enjoying one another's company, mutual confidence grows and becomes well established and finally unshakable. By then we say, I know him well. He will never let me down. I have the utmost faith in him. We are the best of friends. Through these same stages, we may progress at first in our relationship with the living God. To start with, it may seem we are taking stock of one another, looking for what we may have in common, trying to decide if we'll get on well together. As I discover what he's like and what he's doing in the world, my interest in him rapidly grows. I feel I'd like to be added to the circle of his closest friends. It may seem presumptuous to speak of friendship with the eternal creator of the universe. And yet he chose to call Abraham his friend. He spoke to Moses as a man speaks to his friend. Even Job recalled how the friendship of God was upon my tent. 
And Jesus assured his disciples he accepted them not as servants, but as friends, hiding nothing and sharing everything with them. Jesus liked these men, enjoyed their company and valued their loyalty. They in turn were anxious to be worthy of him, pleasing to him, useful to him and responsive to his influence and direction. Friendship on this basis would flourish, although never a friendship between equals. It's commonly observed that by living happily together, a husband and wife become increasingly alike, each influencing the other in the way they think and even speak. It's the same for anyone who lives for long with the living God. We start to think along the same lines. We react as he would react. We say the kind of things he would say. We become increasingly like him. This is how an ordinary person becomes a godly person. This is how trust grows and eventually becomes unshakable. A relationship between two people will be as strong or as weak as the trust between them. It sometimes happens that a relationship will break down when we cease to have complete trust in one another. Unhappiness will enter a marriage, for example, when a husband loses confidence in his wife, or a wife loses respect for her husband. Mistrust enters the workplace when an employee is suspected of dishonesty, or an employer abuses his authority. As a child of God, my deepest desire is to be worthy of his trust. My greatest fear is that I might do something to disappoint him. But I also need to be sure that he'll be loyal to me, that he genuinely cares about me and is committed to looking after me. My relationship with Yahweh will start to break down if I turn away from him, make independent decisions, exclude him from areas of my life. It may also falter if, for some reason, I lose confidence in him. At such times, I may need help to understand what is happening. There are disappointments in life, and not one of us can escape them. Faith may be severely challenged by an unexpected bereavement, by an accident or illness, or by problems that go unresolved, or prayers that seem unanswered. At such times it may appear that our Lord has not fulfilled our expectations. So what exactly has gone wrong? It may be, of course, that our expectations were unjustified or even absurd. We hoped for a gift he never promised or a protection he never guaranteed in this present age. A boy may flap his hands and expect to fly. A holidaymaker may count on sunshine throughout August. An employee may imagine a quick promotion. A cyclist may hope to avoid a flat tyre. We may all wish to get through winter without catching cold. Such fancies are likely to be frustrated. Anyone who supposes there will be no illness, no opposition, no problems to face in this present world, will sooner or later become disillusioned. But if we have a Father who loves us, will he not give us what we ask for? 
Will he not work everything for good to those who love him? Will he not give us a better deal than people who do not believe in him at all? Such questions are often asked and need an honest answer. Firstly, we may have some difficulty identifying a good thing when we see it. It's often said that a child doesn't know what's good for him. Solomon wondered, who knows what is good for man? In fact, we may not know what's good for us at all. Our greatest need may not be for the thing we so urgently demand, but for wisdom to request something far better, or for love to pray that it may go to someone else, or for insight to accept that before we ask for a blessing, we must be more worthy of it. My best spiritual growth may come through unanswered prayer. Secondly, we can trust our Father to know exactly what is good. The idea we first had in mind may not fit the bigger picture he had planned. It would not have been quite so good as we supposed. In fact, it could have been quite disastrous. The more we begin to think like him, the easier it becomes to identify what he would consider good. Through experience we learn to discern what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And from Jesus we learn the wisdom of praying, Not my will, but yours be done. Thirdly, we learn from the seasons of the year to receive good things in their own time. Some things our Lord has promised for this season of human history, and some for the next. Some for this present strange chaotic world and some for the age of eternal life that still lies in the future. We should not expect to pick now the fruit that will ripen then. Often my problem is my impatience. If I don't really trust my father, I will insist on having my gift immediately for fear of not getting it at all. A little boy who's promised a new bike will be content to wait till Christmas if he knows his parents always keep their word. But if they often change their mind, he'll want it now, for fear of not getting it at all. In the Bible are many promises that Yahweh has given to his people. Knowing we can trust him, we learn to be like those who through faith and patience receive what God has promised. As we wait for what we want, our Father may have other good things to give us, to teach us, to work into our character, or to do through us for others. Only when that is done will he add the gift so long desired. A little girl who asks to see the elephants at the zoo may enjoy the seals and marmots along the way to the elephant's enclosure and enjoy them perhaps more than the long-awaited elephant. We've seen how an ordinary human being may begin to live with the eternal God, even now in this present world, aware of and responsive to his love. This is a relationship we'll value above all others and never wish to lose. A car with four wheels will come to a halt if just one of its tyres is flat. 
If a relationship of love breaks down, there's usually been a failure in one of four essential things. The first of these is loyalty. Jesus was utterly loyal to his disciples, and he appreciated their loyalty to him. When they were criticised, he defended them. When they were harassed, he demanded of their persecutor, Why are you persecuting me? Love requires this intense loyalty. It means that whatever happens, we are known to be on the same side, with the same objectives and concerns. He supports us through thick and thin, and when called upon, we too will stand up and speak for him. No one can possibly doubt we belong to him. Then secondly, we know from experience that loyalty builds trust. The disciples learned to trust their Lord because they found him worthy of their complete confidence. He could resolve the most baffling problems of life in this world and the next, and he was committed to doing this for them. It was more of a surprise that he was willing to trust them too. Sending them out in his name, he staked his reputation on them. We know enough about our Lord to have complete trust in him, and we want to be worthy of his trust in us. The third thing is thankfulness. Grateful appreciation adds warmth to any relationship. The Bible writers were thankful people, and with good reason. Every time we count our blessings, we grow in our love for the one who sends them. We also have reason, more surprisingly, to believe that our Lord values our efforts too, however inadequate we may think they are. To some he will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. To receive such affirmation from the eternal God will be an astonishing delight if we are indeed found worthy. Then fourthly, love will do all it can for the happiness of a person who is deeply loved. To upset someone I love would be a grief to us both. To please them will be a pleasure to us both. If I can truly love someone, my ambition will be to make them as happy as I can. Their joy is my delight. That's why, living day by day with our Lord, we make it our aim to please him. And it's wonderful to know that he too takes pleasure in what we do. Loyalty, trust, thankfulness and a desire to please. These all make for a happy life with the Lord our God. But knowing how every relationship involving human beings is at risk of breaking down, we live in constant danger. The temptations of the world, the tricks of the enemy, the strength of physical desire, the weakness of human resolve, all are at work to undermine and destroy the love that unites us with our Lord. If I'm found to be disloyal, mistrusting, unthankful, displeasing, I will see the relationship fall apart. That's why we are so strongly urged, keep yourselves in the love of God.
Do not step away from the love he has for you. Do not be found unworthy of his loyalty, his trust, his thankfulness and his pleasure in you. Keep the relationship right and true, always loyal, always trusting, always thankful, always quick to please. That is the Christian's secret of a happy life. Now we meet a man who taught large crowds about the love of God, yet seriously doubted he'd ever succeeded in loving God himself. John Wesley is one of the best-known Christians of all time. In the course of fifty years, he rode 250,000 miles on horseback, preaching on average two or three times a day in every town and village he came to. Throughout his life he lived as cheaply as possible, providing Bibles and helping other preachers, and ended his days as a poor man with only a few coins to his name. Wesley clearly believed his message to be true and vitally important. So important indeed that everyone must hear it, whatever the cost to his comfort or his pocket. Despite this, in his journals and letters, Wesley several times admitted to great difficulty in loving God. It's well known that in May of 1738 his heart was strangely warmed. But by October of that year the warmth had evidently faded. He wrote in his diary, I cannot find in myself the love of God. Again the following January, I feel this moment I do not love God. Discouraged with his weakness, Wesley admitted to feeling more love for his friends and for good food than he did for his Maker. In this disconcerting spiritual condition, he was travelling constantly on horseback, by muddy tracks in any weather, often tired and uncomfortable, preaching the gospel and leading thousands to faith in Christ. It astonished him that his work should be so blessed when he himself had no passionate feelings of devotion, no ecstasies in worship, no mystical experiences in prayer. This might leave us wondering whether John Wesley, for lack of love, was no better than a noisy gong or a clashing cymbal, and so, according to scripture, worth nothing. We've seen how Jesus affirmed the ancient law, that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. There can be no doubt that Wesley, with his soul and mind and strength, loved God, whatever his heart might seem to lack. The fact is that despite the dramatic power of his preaching, he was not a very emotional man. His feelings would never be a true measure of his love and in time he came to realise this. The heart, soul, mind and strength represent four facets of human character responsive to the love of God. As human beings we differ greatly from one another. Some are intellectual, others highly sensitive, some are very emotional, others active and energetic. Having different personalities, we'd expect to become aware of God in different ways and to respond in different ways to that awareness. 
an energetic person may first love him with the strength of active service, and sometime later become convinced in mind, warm in heart, and devoted in soul to the Lord his God. A sensitive person will love him with a tender conscience, and then afterwards, with mind convinced and heart aroused, commit his strength to the cause of his Lord. An emotional person will love him with exalted joy before exercising his mind or searching his soul or engaging his strength in whatever his Lord calls him to do. An intellectual person will first love him with a clear and convinced mind and then devote his soul and commit his strength to the service of his Lord before his heart is touched with any deep emotion. We differ from one another in temperament and will naturally express commitment in different ways. Yet each of us in time should come to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. This must be our goal. Only when this is attained will our love for him be complete. Meanwhile, knowing our limitations, we must surely accept each other as we are appreciate how others may express their commitment, and grow together in our love for one another and for him. We've seen that love takes many forms. Relationships of love can be surprisingly varied in nature. Although I'll generally love people who love me, it's possible for me to love a person who refuses to love me, or even a person I dislike. Indeed, Jesus said, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? But he went further when he said, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. A person capable of loving those who hate him must have some inner resources of love that don't depend on receiving love in return. Among us are people for whom love has become instinctive, written deeply into their own character. It's become habitual and natural for them to extend a forgiving and a helping hand to the most unlovable and disagreeable of people. This we might call one-way love, and it happens far more often than we might suppose. A mother will love her baby when the child knows nothing except its own craving for milk. A father will love his son, even while the boy is unhelpful and rude. A daughter will love her disabled mother when the old lady is cranky and ungrateful. The love flows in just one direction. It's even possible to love someone who's unaware of us. You may have a profound and affectionate regard for an actor, perhaps, or a politician or a sportsman. You may sign a petition or join a demonstration in support of someone who's never heard of you. You may pay for the education of a child in Africa who does not know your name. These are all examples of one-way love. And we can't say it's a bad thing. It's good and right in many circumstances. But it's not the same as two-way love. And in some circumstances, it's not right at all. Sadly, there are marriages where love is all one way, 
receiving little or no acknowledgement or response. Rarely can such a marriage survive. Friendships, too, will fade when communication is all in one direction. I can write a letter to an old school friend and a second letter, but if he does not reply, the friendship is likely to lapse. Love between two people will probably die if one is active and the other entirely passive. When that happens, love has shriveled into a duty and an obligation. We don't want this kind of one-way relationship with Yahweh, the Lord our God. If I offer worship and obedience, receiving nothing in return, the love flows just one way. If he provides my daily bread and keeps me from danger, receiving no acknowledgement from me, the love flows just one way. Such love is likely to weaken and fail. We want and need a living relationship with our Father in heaven, a willing exchange of love in which we respond to him and he responds to us. We need to know him and love him as a person like ourselves. To our delight, this is exactly what he has in mind. He enjoys the interaction of a two-way love. He's never been willing for us to go it alone. It is written, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. In past times, Yahweh longed for a response from the Israelites. All day long, he said, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. When we cry out to him, he's more than ready to hear us and reply. Call to me, says the Lord, and I will answer you. That is why we pray, knowing he wants to hear, knowing he wants to deal with the concerns we bring to him. From experience, David could testify, Yahweh hears when I call to him. Peter agreed when he said, The eyes of the Lord are on those who please him, and his ears are open to their prayer. This indeed is our daily experience. I draw near to him, and he draws near to me. I pray for comfort, and am comforted. I ask for something to happen, and it does. I ask for patience and receive fresh strength. I ask for wisdom and suddenly understand. I pray for guidance and then know the way to go. Whenever I turn to him, I have his answer because he loves me. Then as he speaks to me, he too looks for my response. His spirit convicts me of some fault and I quickly put it right. He shows me a verse of scripture and I take it to heart. He leads me to someone in need and I'm ready to help. These things I do for my Lord because he's won my loyalty and my love. My desire is to be always available, always aware, always responsive to his call. Jesus said, whoever accepts my instructions and follows them, he it is who loves me. That is how love works.